Hello and welcome to PSA Today, episode number 14. PSA Today stands for Privacy, Surveillance, and Anonymity. It is Wednesday, July 29th, and I am here with my co-host, Kalia Young. Hi, Kalia. Hey, Seth. And we have a special guest today, um, Dr. Jen King. Um, hi, Jen. Hello. Jen is the Director of Consumer Privacy at Stanford's Center for Internet and Society. Uh, Jen, who I met, Dr. King, who I met last year or the year before uh, when I was just starting up um, Spartacus, um, she finished her dissertation um, at, uh, at Berkeley uh, on privacy, disclosure, and social exchange theory. Um, she's also been in the internet business, and she's um, just uh, publishing today uh, a piece uh, on notice and consent. And we've long wanted to have you on the podcast, Jen, so thanks for joining. Thank you very much. Um, why don't you start by telling us your your privacy story? <laughs> how, how did I come to privacy? Um, right. So it's it's been a bit of a long process. Uh, I... In college, I majored in political science and sociology, and I really thought originally I would get into um, campaigns or, you know, I was always on the verge of going to law school, but never quite could cross that threshold. Um, but I, I, worked, I was a congressional intern, so I interned on Capitol Hill when I was in college and got a bit of the kind of government bug. Uh, but as a Californian, when I went out to Washington, DC, I discovered that I was not an East Coast person. <laughs> I was very much a Californian. Uh, and so I couldn't kind of see myself moving to uh, DC and giving kind of politics a run in that sense. Um, but I was always interested in issues of constitutional law. And as a woman, I will say that it became very clear to me that my kind of bodily control and a lot of the kind of space I have in society was dependent on privacy, um, you know, our inferred right to privacy uh, through the Fourth Amendment. So I was always interested in it from that perspective. Uh, and actually, as it happens, I come from a very tech uh, heavy family. I was the only person in my family who was not a computer scientist or a computer programmer. So when the internet took off and I found myself working in the internet industry, it actually wasn't a big stretch for me to both, A, kind of understand the whole tech side because I grew up in tech, but B, take that kind of sensibility around civil rights, um, understanding governance and public policy and trying to start connecting the dots between what I saw happening on the internet and how it was eventually going to run into uh, regulation. So, you know, I worked for the dot-com boom very much in that era when all the internet companies were basically in the mind of, we don't care about Washington, D.C. Regulation is completely irrelevant to us, you know, hands off the internet. Um, but I actually worked on the front lines at Yahoo on some of the same issues that we are dealing with today. So things like content moderation and user-generated content. I mean, all the things we hear Facebook being grilled about, you know, we dealt with back in 2002 and earlier <laughs> uh, at Yahoo um, and other, you know, other places too. I mean, none of this is new. I mean, the only thing that's really changed, I would say in the last 20 years on that front is like, we didn't have video um, in 2002 on the internet. And so um, it was pretty clear to me from that experience that, um, you know, it, the internet was going to run into all of these fascinating kind of legal and social issues 
that were just emerging at the time and really were much more behind the scenes at these companies than they were at the front lines. But, um, but through that experience, I also began to realize that privacy was something that really mattered <laughs> online. Because obviously, uh, through technological infrastructures, we can really peer into what you're doing um, and observe what people are doing. So it was from that experience and really the, the absolute good luck of uh, deciding to go to Berkeley for my graduate work and running into the woman who became my advisor, who uh, Deirdre Mulligan, who was a privacy lawyer who actually kind of just allowed me to see that you could take that interest and turn it into, you know, a real career. <laughs> so uh, and that was really a lot of luck. So what was it like? I mean, you you were at Yahoo, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, yeah, don't what remind was me. The, okay, <laughs> but what, what was the, what was the consumer zeitgeist then about privacy versus today? How, oh, much, of, how, how much of it has changed? Right. Well, you know, I would say it's gone from a very much a fringe issue to a central issue. So, you know, my personal experience of being a privacy researcher, I mean, I started really actively re conducting research in this space in 2005. And um, the the attitude was really, it was very much a tinfoil hat concern at that point. Um, that on it, from the consumer side, people really weren't thinking about it. You know, where you saw it emerge were, again, some of the same kind of flashpoints we see today, but again, issues that weren't affecting people in a widespread way. So, we, you know, the industry or the policy space, there's always been focus on things like cookies. But where I think I saw it kind of emerging first was, um, honestly, you know, as a woman, seeing the issues that women were dealing with on the internet to some extent, stalking, for example, um, you know, having photos shared about you that you didn't want shared, uh, you know, things that were actually more like in, you know, direct invasions of privacy. Um, I had to some extent a frontline kind of seat um, to some of those internal conflicts that I observed at Yahoo. But those were, again, they were, um, those weren't issues that were affecting us in a widespread way. They were much more kind of very siloed uh, issues. And the concerns that people had around government surveillance, again, were very much brushed off as being fringe ideas. And so I spent a summer interning with the Electronic Frontier Foundation when I was uh, in my master's program. And you know, there was very much a sense, I think, at that point that the people who were interested in these issues were, were literally tinfoil hats. And you know, it took, I think, the Snowden revelations in 2013 for people to really understand on a much more broad mainstream level that those were not actually idle concerns that they're, you know, substantive threats to privacy um, and that, you know, our government really is spying on, you know, some amount of internet traffic and some amount of what we do. Um, so that was definitely a, I think, a wake up call um, on the government surveillance side. I think the kind of consumer side of watching what companies are doing with our data, understanding how, you know, to what effect they are surveilling us, that's been a much more slow, slow burn. Um, and I don't really think that hit the popular conscience until more like 2000, well, maybe after Snowden, but like, I feel like 2015 and maybe Cambridge Analytica were some of the big widespread turning points where we saw people on a much more widespread basis going, oh, this is maybe a thing. <laughs> this isn't just some, you know, bizarre rando tinfoil hat thing. I'm actually really curious. Um, 
how do you define privacy? Right. What a thicky, what a sticky issue. <laughs> um, so to some extent, I define it narrowly um, in that when I'm talking about privacy, I'm talking about information privacy. So the privacy of our data. Um, and I think that's important because you do see a lot of ways in which one form of privacy is kind of construed as the same as all others. So, um, you know, in my academic life, you know, that gets messy when you see people trying to take one theory from one kind of source and try to apply it to another. So you see a lot of the theorizing and thinking about privacy coming from physical privacy, like whether it's the privacy of our bodies or privacy of where we are in space and the places we are. Um, it, it's, I think it's, it's not always an even translation to apply that to the privacy of our data. Um, but not to kind of work around my, your, your question, you know, so I really focus mostly on information privacy. So again, it's that sense of um, what should we expect when our data is collected? In what context is it used? In what context might it be reused? Uh, you know, what happens when we disclose it to others and especially to companies and not just individuals? And I guess, so there's two dimensions to that from my perspective. One is what I call institutional privacy. And that's, that's the privacy of your information kind of in that institutional context. And that can be a company, it could be the government, you know, versus what I think of as social privacy, social information privacy. And that's more of what you think about if you're on Facebook or Twitter and you're sharing information and you're mostly concerned about what's happening with it with respect to the other people, the other individuals to whom you're sharing it. So that's one of the dimensions I tend to first start with in trying to clarify, okay, what are we talking about here? Am I, am I concerned about privacy from the government? Am I concerned about privacy from my family or from my friends or from my employer? Uh, so those are one of the ways I, I start trying to make sense of, kind of what is the issue at hand? What are we trying to talk about and how can we think about what solutions we can come up with? And how does da- so you talk about the difference between um, privacy of our person of our location, but then separately sort of privacy of our data? How does data get personal to people? How how do people grok the? Um, how does it become visceral that I am my data? That you know, as I wrote, like you know, our data ourselves. Right, it's tough because there is a lot of data that is collected about us that is very difficult to translate into you know, something substantial or something that resonates with us. Uh, I think there are some obvious places where that happens, um, but you know, one of the, I think the challenges in this space, especially when we start thinking about trying to pass laws like the new California privacy law that we have on the books right now, that gives you rights to see what data companies have about you, you know, one way that that can be obscured is to hand you back an, you know, a large file of you know, JSON or XML that, you know, as an individual, you can't make any sense of, but you need some kind of translation layer to really show you what it is that this data, you know, means. So one of the ways I've, um, I found this can often resonate with people is when you look at something, I guess when I, I want to say almost organic. So um, I've done a few kind of pilot experiments where I sat down and had people look at their Google search history. And that's always really fascinating because you can go into uh, your Google account. And for most of us, unless you've ever twiddled those those settings, 
uh, they're probably on by default to save all of your search queries. And so in some cases, people have 10 plus years of search queries saved at Google that they may not even know about. And the process of taking people through that is often, um, you know, it depends. Sometimes people are like, wow, I remember searching for when that, that time when I was really into whatever, and I was searching for that all the time, or it can almost be like a diary. Uh, but yeah. then you'll have, you know, there'll be experiences of actually going, oh, shoot, that's when I was searching for that itchy rash I had on my butt, <laughs> you know, whatever, like, sensitive thing that you weren't really thinking anybody was ever, you know, recording that or would see it again. Um, and so I've seen some really varied um, reactions to going through one's search history, but that's one of the more kind of, I guess, organic sources, because it's your actual words that you typed into a browser, uh, and that gets returned to you in a form that um, allows you to actually really kind of see a, uh, an evolution of your thinking and kind of what you're interested in. That often kind of hones in for people, wow, it wasn't just that single time I searched for that one thing. It's like the aggregation of all that data is what really turns it into something that often concerns people because suddenly they're like, I don't actually, you know, if, if I, if this was shared to the world, I would be embarrassed or I'd feel you know, violated in some way. Uh, you know, the New York Times did a great piece back in December on location privacy. And that's another one of those things where, you know, if I just give you a list of GPS coordinates with timestamps, for most people, that doesn't mean anything. But if I can visualize that and show you on a map, um, you know, your location history over time, again, people begin to go, oh, <laughs> that's the, you know, that's what makes this kind of, you know, personal to me. And so, you know, I'd say there's kind of two components here with not just the data I, or not just the examples I shared with you, but other, and thinking about this as well. One is aggregation, right? So it's, it's the amount, um, it's the quantity, it's not the one-off, it's not the one point in time, and then temporality, timing, right? So it's the, I can show you your history of something. Um, that's when people start to go, oh, I get it. Like, this is not. I don't think about it that single time I'm searching for Google or that one time I shared my location to get to figure out what ice cream you know shop was near me. But it's the oh, it's all the times I've done that over five years. And then it starts to resonate with people. So when you say that they get it and it resonates with them, meaning like you mean that they're like, oh, I should care about this or like what well, is it becomes getting tangible? Yeah, well, I think for some people, it becomes tangible, uh, meaning like, oh, it was abstract. One of the things I've, I've found in the research I've done is that when you ask people about like, are you concerned about um, the fact this company is tracking you? And again, it's really hard to wrap your mind around the one off instance or like, oh, well, I know I check my I check that that news site every day. Um but you don't really have a way to kind of anchor that into something substantial. So visualizing uh, data for people or showing it its temporality really at least makes it tangible. Now, whether someone gets concerned about it is a different story. And I would say one of the real challenges about conducting research in this area is that you're not trying to scare people. Like you don't want to like frighten them into having a reaction when you're actually just kind of trying to objectively get a sense of like what people's concerns are. Um, some people do get scared. Some people are like, oh my God, I, you know, I feel so exposed. I had no idea. Um, but really, I think one of the biggest challenges in this space and privacy in, in particular is just how abstract it can be and how difficult it is for us to really feel like, um, really just understand like where that data is and what it's doing because you can't touch it right it's intangible um 
And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges with also trying to explain privacy and pass privacy laws um, is that privacy is this intangible concept. You know, there are ways in which we can make it physically resonant. So, you know, one of the ways I often talk to people when there's a lot of assertions around, well, people just really don't care as much anymore. Like things are changing. I'm like, well, to some extent that could be true, but as far as I know, I don't know anybody who's willing to give up bathroom doors, you know? So if you anchor in something like an actual physical experience, it's usually easier for people to understand. Um, and so in some of the work I'm doing right now, one of the recommendations that came out of this uh, project I've uh, worked on recently on notice and consent was this idea of trying to visualize data experiences in particular for policymakers, because we feel like policymakers in general don't have a background in this space. Uh, you know, <laughs> we'll see at this next hearing we're having on Capitol Hill, probably just a demonstration of just how much our policymakers don't understand about technology. But being able to try to visualize these things concretely for people can really help them understand kind of the extent to what's actually happening. There's also a sense that people also try to minimize um, their vulnerability. So that's what I call the nothing to hide argument. Well, I've got nothing to hide. I'm not doing anything wrong. No one's going to like notice me. Um, and it, you may not actually be, quote unquote, breaking any laws. You may not actually be a terrorist. You may not be, you know, expressing an unpopular political opinion. But, you know, privacy is not just about hiding the things that people could be doing wrong. You know, it's about providing you with the space to kind of be your authentic self to some extent, uh, you know, free of judgment and free of observation. Yeah, a, a couple notes. So one is... Um you know, I think about privacy as it relates to, um, you know, the general public in, in two ways. One is it's a fundamental right, and it's something that um, we should all have and that we're born with, and it's it's just a, a human value. Um, and so one of the questions is, is, what does that feel like? Do people feel that it's fundamental? Do they Do they feel it as... Um, just like breathing and just like any kind of independence as an individual human being. But it's also the, the case that a lot of people don't notice it until they lose it, right? right? So that in the case of privacy, historically, as far as I'm concerned, it, it's, well, if, if I get hacked or if my identity gets stolen, um, then I don't have any privacy. Then there's, there's an acute cost to me of having lost it right mm -hmm. um and so a lot of the um reactions and the needs to get privacy at least as i've seen it is only when people lose it how do you is it important to inculcate in people just the um the sense of privacy as a fundamental human value is it something that we have as americans is it something that other countries have more or less of um, clearly the search companies and the internet companies, you know, bend over backwards algorithmically to personalize your experience. But at the same time, um, they don't always make it easy for you to understand how much they know about you, right? That your search history, um, that is your diary, that is such a, um, it is what makes you, you, you know, in a, in a very deep way, those, those searches over the last 10 or 20 years, or my Amazon purchase history, um, it's a it's it's a fascinating 
piece of content that's personalized for me, and yet it's buried within those platforms. It's not that easy to access, and I'm sure that's not accidental. Right. right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm sorry. So what, what is your specific question there? I mean, I, I agree with you on everything you've said. I think it was more of a comment. Um, I'm just trying to sort of like parse this sort of dichotomy between um, privacy as a fundamental right, as a fundamental value that we should um, hold sure. dear, um, but also privacy as this thing that we don't really notice until we've been hacked, until it's been taken away from us. So how, how do we build muscle memory around privacy um, before we lose it, right? That it shouldn't have to take... Uh, um, a Snowden revelation, or it shouldn't have to take my my identity getting stolen for me to suddenly value it. How can it be part, um, you know, of my everyday life as a as a citizen? Right. Okay. So there's a couple threads there. I think one is that one of the interesting things I've seen change in the last ten years um, has not only been more awareness on the consumer front, but I would say within the last five in particular. There's been a growing understanding of the ways in which privacy and civil rights are intertwined. And I think we're mostly seeing that because of the growth of surveillance, you know, whether that's face recognition, um, you know, public surveillance. Uh, there's suddenly, I think, began, or not maybe not suddenly, but there's been a growing understanding. And I think this is, we really see this on the part of different civil society organizations where they're realizing, oh, you know, something like freedom to assemble to protest, you know, think about what we're seeing happening in the streets of Portland right now. Um, privacy is a, is a piece of that because, you know, if I can't be anonymous in public, if I can't gather to protest without being recognized, then um, obviously I've lost something. Um, and so that's been a growing concern. Um, and so there's been, a, I think, a greater awareness that privacy is more fundamental to some of these civil rights than they realized. Um, part of that is its intersection specifically with technology and the different ways in which the tech companies both create these tools that governments can use and in which they also create the data that governments also obtain. And so, um, you know, I think for a long time, there was a sense that like what happened in social media was kind of, you know, it's like a throwaway space. It's like, oh, we're just all fooling around here. We're expressing ourselves. And you know, it's it's not that it's a private space, but more like what went on there was not maybe so fundamental to our civil discourse. Obviously, uh, with 2016, with Facebook, with election hacking and all the different kind of issues that we have flying around, that there's a bit of, been a perception of that that's changed. There's also been more awareness that we see government entities in the U.S. specifically that are doing things like buying data, uh, buying location data, buying um social media data in order to, uh, you know, investigate or surveil people without actually doing it themselves. So I think there's also been a growing recognition that even if our government, quote unquote, is not doing the direct surveillance, that we are, uh, companies are essentially kind of acting as the frontline surveillors and allowing that to happen. And so that's been a growing trend. Um, I don't know if the, you know, I'm not a fan of scaring people into <laughs> understanding privacy or respecting it. Um, but just to say that I think for a long time, it was treated as strictly a consumer shopping issue. And that, you know, a lot of the debates were around, well, okay, so I get the targeted ad. So I still can control my response to that targeted ad. Maybe targeted advertising isn't that bad. Of course, the, you know, the counter argument is you're just gonna get a lot of spam. 
don't you want ads that are relevant? And maybe that's true to some extent. Um, but there was really a sense of it really being contained to kind of that consumer realm and that it didn't have any bleed over. And I think what we're seeing is that there's actually quite a bit of bleed over. You know, when we see companies like Amazon building facial recognition systems that, you know, the military or policing organizations want to purchase and use, you know, suddenly that dynamic shifts and people realize, oh, it's not just about shopping anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, there, there are entire debates around, I think, just that that consumer experience itself and to the extent to which uh, knowing more about you can potentially push you into making decisions that aren't in your best interest or, um, I mean, well, and another, I guess another point on that too is there's also been more of a shift of not just seeing it purely as, oh, I'm not gonna get the right product in front of me to, oh, you know, we're advertising housing on platforms like Facebook. And if we're using algorithms that explicitly target or um, exclude, particular classes of people, particular races of people, like suddenly we're into a civil rights issue. And it's not just about consumer preferences. It's about, oh, I'm not going to show the ads for tech jobs to women because I think that only men should have those jobs, or I'm not going to show housing jobs to African-Americans because I only want white tenants. Uh, so you know, suddenly we've you know, bled over from this kind of locus of, it's just about where I spend my money to, it's actually about where I live my life <laughs> and how I live my life. And it has many more kind of interlocking pieces than just the consumer piece. So I'm curious about what you think about the tech companies recent, some of them like IBM saying we're never doing facial recognition and folks like Amazon saying we're putting a pause for a year. What do you think about that development? It's better than nothing. <laughs> it's better than no response at all. Um, you know, unfortunately, I don't think it solves the ongoing problems. Uh, but, you know, I think at least we've gone from, you know, we're immune to regulation, don't touch us, to, I mean, obviously, we're hearing a very different tune of please regulate us. Of course, we'd like to help write the rules, but please do regulate us. Um, to at least in the kind of facial recognition and AI debate, more of an explicit, hey, actually, we really think that there should be some either baseline regu- regulation or principles in place, because even some of the corporate actors are beginning to see that this could be an issue of deep kind of ethical significance for society. And I think some of them don't want to end up being on the wrong side of it. One, So given COVID and given the pandemic, you know, I've been sort of thinking about um, sort of privacy as, as a a kind of barbell where on the one hand um, there's more and more demand, there's more and more enlightenment about data practices and there's more and more skepticism um, about these technology companies. There's more awareness of surveillance capitalism. And I think there's a movement, um, you know, among early adopters, but increasingly, um, and we're seeing this at Spartacus, more and more people just want to buy privacy. They want to be protected um, they want to delete their traces. They want to um, be in control and have agency over what is known about them. Um, at the same time, um, particularly when you look at the sports leagues now going back into the bubble, or I've seen a couple of opportunities um, and technologies around getting Hollywood back into production, that the requirement, or even schools, right, and going back to colleges, that the requirement for sort of getting back to life is um, 
is absolute surveillance. Right. That in order to get my paycheck, in order to go back to work, in order to go back to school, here, here is my contact tracing, here's my social distancing beacons and avatars, um, here's my test results. Please know me and follow me and track me because I want the, the, the goods that come with that. Is that right. your sense? Yes. <laughs> yes and, yes and, or yes but. Um, so... You know, obviously, a crisis like this puts a lot of uh, pressure on us to be known and to validate and to kind of show our kind of social responsibility. And, you know, I maintain that we can do these things without completely undermining privacy. Uh, if we're going to do something like contact tracing, uh, if we need to verify, you know, who people have been near, um, you know, you can do that in a way that doesn't create you know, permanent databases that doesn't necessarily create this data for eternal uses, for reuses. There's ways to do it that are transparent and thoughtful. Um, of course, you know, thoughtful, transparent thinking, I think, is not what we're good at in a crisis. <laughs> um, and also, I think there are a lot of actors that see a way to make money off this that um, either are, you know, creating products or services simply in reaction to it, but also because they see that there's a leverage point that if, oh, I can get, you know, this type of data, then I can potentially build a business off this in the long term. Um, and, you know, absent, uh, in the U.S. at least, absent any real substantive privacy laws, like that's entirely possible. I think one of the areas that I find the most worrisome in this space has been um, the response of our civic entities, whether that's at the state level, the county level, um, the school district level, um, in that when they do agree to sign contracts with, uh, you know, to build an app, to use some kind of educational technology, you know, whatever it might be in this crisis that kind of enables learning to happen or contact tracing to happen, they often do so without any expertise around privacy. So the actual lawyers who are negotiating those contracts it's like it's not a priority or often that more than not, I think we see, especially in the context of a cash strapped state or a cash strapped city, um, they'll take the cheaper option from a vendor if that enables, you know, tracking of their own citizens or students or whatever it might be. And so you see a real willing or lack of kind of uh, either knowledge. Sometimes I think they just don't know. They just don't have the experience. Or sometimes it's concrete. It's like, oh, actually, we think this is great. We'll get a cheaper product and go ahead and track every, you know, Michigan resident or you know whatever it might be. Like, there's actually a, kind of a very cynical approach to it um, that they just don't value or they don't understand. Kind of that they're selling their own citizens down the river in order to get something, you know, potentially cheaper. So that worries me the most, as well as the possibility that it opens for us to just build kind of permanent infrastructures around this stuff when I think that you don't have to by any means. Yeah, it it sounds like, you know, oil wells and toxic dumps. Kind of, right? yeah. <laughs> um, so you spoke about privacy laws. Can we talk a little bit about CCPA and, how you know, sort of what led up to that? You know, how do you evaluate it right now? And, 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 and what are the prospects moving forward for a national privacy law? Sure. Um, so I always have to do the disclaimer that I'm not a lawyer. Yep. Um, you know, I know a lot about privacy law, <laughs> but no other kind of law. <laughs> um, but even so, I'm still not a lawyer. So don't ever take my advice as legal advice, because that would be bad for you. Um, you know, so we have the CCPA in California, you know, went into effect on January 1st, 2020. 
And uh, of course, there is Prop 24, I think it's 24, uh, the new California Consumer Rights Act, I think, or California Privacy Rights Act, CPRA, um, that could pass in November, depending on what happens. So, um, you know, even with CCPA, you know, we now have more privacy rights in California than any other state in the entire U.S. And, you know, that is bound to put pressure at the federal level. But I think it's really hard to predict what's going to happen at the federal level right now. Uh, nothing will happen, obviously, before the November election. You know, what happens after January 1st, 2021 is uh, still a bit of a mystery, obviously. But regardless of who's in power, you know, this does, the fact that we have a law in California and we don't have anywhere else, one anywhere else in the U.S. does put pressure on the federal government uh, to kind of force their hand at you know, harmonizing, um, especially if we see other laws pass. I mean, that that was one of the first concerns that I think came up uh, with the passage of the CCPA is that we did see other states immediately try to act to pass laws, although I'm not sure almost any of them have been effective. But should we see other states act, then you, you know, you end up with this patchwork, um, this patchwork of privacy rights that puts pressure on companies to have to comply. And those compliance rules could be different. Um, and it generally creates headaches for companies, at least on that level. And so they tend to want to focus on getting federal level legislation passed that harmonizes state laws. Although I think right now we still have 49 states with security breach notification laws. Uh, and we still haven't seen security breach notification legislation uh, on the books or even prioritized for the last many years. Um, but with the CCPA, what's interesting, I think, about it is... Um, you know, it, it gives consumers a new set of rights, the right to request information from companies, the right to delete it, um, the right to have them not sell it. But um, in terms of it being an effective law for you and me, uh, you know, in our daily lives, it's not going to yield much result, um, mostly because all the burden is on you to take advantage of these new forms of transparency. And so, even if you do, even if you tell them not to sell your data, even if you request copies of your data and so on, um, your kind of lived daily experience on the internet is probably not going to change or look much different. Uh, and so to that extent, I find it really frustrating because I don't feel like it provides much relief for individuals or much real change. However, I do think that there is value in kind of forcing companies to reckon with their data. Um, and this is, to some extent, why I think you see people comparing it to the GDPR, because that is very much one of the functions of the GDPR was in, in Europe, the General Data Protection Regulation, which went into effect in May 2018, was to kind of force companies to say, to really trace, like, what are my inputs? What are my outputs? Like, what data do I actually have? What is the chain of custody around this data? You know, what am I doing with it? Um, because I think before that, you potentially you know, had even very large companies that may have not gone through that exercise of really trying to identify uh, what data they have and you know, should they keep it forever, for example, <laughs> should they not? Um, and so unfortunately, you know, having people comply for compliance's sake is not very fruitful if there's not also enforcement uh, attached to it. And I think there's still a lot of speculation as to how well the California Attorney General can potentially enforce this law. Um, you know, they are trying. Um, I don't know who they're targeting at this point in terms of actors, but I know there have been, um, they are, as soon as the regulations went into effect, they've been 
looking at who they can potentially nail for violations of it. Um, that said, I mean, this is one of the criticisms you're also hearing about the GDPR in Europe is that, um, you know, that the data protection regulators have not had the resources to really thoroughly kind of take action in all the many uh, violations they may have witnessed. So, you know, we can pass a lot of laws and, and create a lot of compliance burden uh, and really not affect a lot of change on the ground for us as consumers. So if you had your, like, if you could write the law um, that would affect the change that you're imagining as possible, what would it say? What would be different? So I think that you have to have a shift in thinking about laws from the individual consumer point of view to potentially placing some wholesale uh, regulations on, you know, on the buying and selling and sharing of data. Um, you know, I think that we need to talk seriously about areas of life where we just want to create carve outs where we might want to say, you know, you just can't do that. You just can't sell, you know, this data. You cannot buy it. You cannot trade it. Um, I also think that one of the things we need to do is to think more about changing the model. Um, I don't have a strong opinion right now about whether we need a version of the GDPR. Um, you know, data protection model is, it's very interesting, but I think because we don't have a fundamental right to privacy, uh, we don't have a human rights privacy framework like they do in the EU. Um, without changing our constitution <laughs> and adding a right to privacy, um, you know, a lot of what we, you know, California, we have a right to privacy in our state constitution, for example, but, you know, we don't have an explicit right to privacy in our U.S. constitution. And I can't imagine, I don't just don't see a world right now where we could amend the constitution to provide us that or to really shift the thinking from uh, what's a kind of a consumer harms perspective, like how am I hurting people, um, to a human rights perspective. And so assuming we still have to work within those boundaries, it's not as if we can just say, oh, let's just adopt the GDPR and, you know, call it quits. Um, but I do think we need to think about kind of collective harms to privacy and moving a lot of this away from placing all of the onus on individuals to have to think about it and figure out how to negotiate it, how to react, how to exercise their rights, and how can we put some of the burden on thinking about widespread harms to people. And again, there might be areas where we just say, hey, you can't do that. Um, and one of the interesting areas of thought here is around fiduciary duties. So actually creating fiduciary duties of care, you know, so requiring data providers or data collectors to act with your interests in mind. Um, you know, how we get to evaluating that, I think, is a different question. Uh, another piece of that puzzle is uh, creating new kind of data governance or new legal vehicles. Um, so one of the areas that I've looked at are called data trusts. I don't know if you guys have talked about that on in your podcast so far. Um, but, you know, trying to create models where we could have people delegate some amount of their data kind of management to third parties, trusted third parties that can act in their best interests. Because I think one of the hardest problems we have right now is as long as it's always me individually trying to work with, you know, the 100, 200, 500 companies that I'm potentially engaged in relationships with, like, there's just no way I can do it. I mean, not only is there no kind of legal way, there's no, um, I don't have enough time. <laughs> I don't want to spend my life managing my data. Yeah. I can't even manage my own photos. <laughs> I don't want to spend my life trying to figure out, like, what's my data worth? Do I want to sell it? Do I want to license it? Like, all those data management questions. Um, yeah. 
And so trying to find proxies or ways that we can manage groups of data, whether that we do that at a consumer level, whether we do it at a like a municipal level, uh, whether we do it with things like COVID, um, those are ways in which I think we can start rethinking the whole model of data governance and how we kind of share and negotiate and protect data. Well, you do have like the My Data movement coming out of Finland, looking at connecting up what they call My Data Operators, which are companies who support you with tooling to collect the data and potentially have self-reflection and potentially also use it in other transactions that it might be useful to those parties. But instead of you trying to like do OAuth, say, to connect two services, you're, you're pulling the data down into your data store bank vault, whatever they end up calling it, and, and providing access to that with terms and condition that you're setting to connect your data to provide you a service and then potentially erase it or forget it because it's in your data bank. If you come back to them, they can get it again, right? Like, Yeah, I, I, I see some form of that happening in the future. It's just um, whether it's at the very micro consumer level in all the ways, you know, if, if you just think about the plate of websites you visit on an everyday basis, or if it's more in government data, if it's around, you know, your medical data, for example, I'd imagine medical data is a much more fruitful area to start with. Um, because again, that's one of those things that, you know, there's a very discreet kind of group of people who tend to access it. And, um, there's a high privacy value in it and it makes more sense to potentially kind of delegate some amount of management to that. Um, anyway, I mean, I, I think that's the future, but I think there's a long way to go from those kind of higher level abstract concepts to what do we actually do in the trenches, you know, for individuals on a day-to-day basis. That's, that's the piece I'm really interested in trying to figure out right now. Can you talk a little bit of, I mean, one thing we haven't brought up um, because it is a rabbit hole is, is, you know, I want to sell my data for money. I want right. to get paid for the use of my data. Where's my um, universal basic data in income? Where's my data dividend? Um, right. And we've talked about this in the past. What What's your, and Andrew Yang, you know, popularized right. it during his campaign, and he's now launched something um, around a data dividend. Um, a, a lot of it is, is kind of pyrotechnics and, and showmanship and a kind of weird ambulance chasing, which is like, hey, we'll, you know, given um, CCPA, you know, click this box and, and, and e-sign this form and we will sue companies on your behalf to give you the money that you're owed from them exploiting your data, right? And it's, 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 it, it clearly appeals to the popular imagination. I, I don't think there's a lot of there there. I'm just kind of curious what, you know, what your take is. I, so I agree that there's not a lot of there there. Um, I'm a little, so I don't want to malign his intent because I honestly I can't tell what it is exactly I don't know if it is showmanship or an you know sincere desire to help people uh unsure about this particular piece um I don't think and I'm not and just to be clear I'm not I'm not singling out Andrew Yang because I actually think a lot of those ideas are going to pop up on the election trail from both parties because it plays well you know on Broadway it plays well all over the country Right. You and know, because I think love they, the idea that they've been screwed or they've been taken advantage of and they they deserve something to be paid back to them. Right. And I I would imagine that the kind of more free market approach would be the like sell your data um, piece, which I just worry that um, 
it really is sell. Like it's not license, it's not share, which I think most of the other kind of data governance proposals that we're thinking about, um, we collectively, not just me, um, are more around how can I provide access but not give up ownership or not give up my rights? And the sale, um, you know, if really do mean sell, I think is misleading because I don't know if I really want to, like if it's my DNA, do I want to sell my DNA off? Um, maybe I want to provide access to researchers to do research to my DNA, but I want to maintain control over it, but I don't necessarily want to sell my DNA. Um, so I don't know if, yeah, I do think that there's this like, let's you know show me the Benjamins aspect of it. Like, let's just get you paid um, without really kind of feeling out the repercussions of what the selling um, regime may look like, which to my mind seems like it could be more permanent than even what we're involved in right now. Because yes, today data companies gather it. I don't get necessarily get compensated unless I want to count quote unquote free services as my compensation. Um, but there's something more decisive about assigning over my property rights. If I can even say I have property rights in right. data, um, you know, well, and, to someone if, permanently. And if you go with the data as the, the data as a, a part of your body or data as self, and you have human rights, can you even sell it? Because we have decided that you cannot buy and sell people. So if, right. you know, I have so. a feeling the year, the Europeans would probably come up with a decisive negative answer on that question would be my guess. Yes. <laughs> you know, America, we, we make everything for sale, but you know, uh, yeah. So I, I, the data, so what I was trying to get to is that, I, you know, I think another way to approach it through data dividends is, and there's a proposal right now in California um, on the table trying to, you know, explore this point of view, but that's about taxation. You know, it's about let's find a way to tax companies based on the data they have collected and then take that money and redistribute it, you know, at a societal level or in California, at least at a state level. Um, and, you know, you could redistribute it such that we all get a payout individually. We get a check the same way that the metaphor or not metaphor, the example that's used most commonly in this space is, you know, the Alaskans who, uh, you know, if you live in Alaska, I don't know what the residency requirements are, but you get a check every year from the state's oil sales. Um, you know, that's, been proposed as a way to get money back into the hands of individuals, but you could also imagine that the you know we tax data and we use it to fund whether it's you know the general fund or it's direct payments or it's digital education, it's connectivity. I mean, one of the things we're seeing in this current crisis is just how bad universal connectivity is as an issue. We, you know, we have so many low-income families that can't get access to the internet and can't do online schooling, for example. You know, what if we tax, uh, you know, data as a way of, of providing things like universal connectivity? Uh, you know, of course, I think the companies will resist that. Um, in my kind of very basic uh, approach, I can imagine there's more support for letting me buy your data <laughs> as a one-time thing and pocketing it and using whatever I want with it than having to pay an annual tax on data. Um, but, you know, I guess my my point of view would be that I see more collective promise in a taxation data dividend scheme than I would a uh, individual compensation sell off my data scheme. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think we'll see a lot of these different ideas and proposals kind of rear their heads. You know, as, plus, as kind of it's just going to say, plus, you know, the fact of the matter is my individual data as a one-off is not what's valuable about it, you know, with rare exceptions, you know, there are some categories of people who are kind of high data worth individuals that are very appealing to, you know, advertisers or what have you. But in general, like my individual data is not going to yield me a lot of money. Um, it's the data in aggregate that's valuable.
Yeah, but just like your vote, your your data counts. Yep, it does. Each one of ours. Um, this is great. We could keep going, but we 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 we're done. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, Kalia, any final questions or comments for Jen? Nope, oh, I think you're muted. Uh oh. Thank you for coming, Jen. It was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, stay safe and, and, and keep up the good work. And um, we will put some links uh, in the podcast notes uh, for your when, – when, when is your notice and consent paper coming out? Uh, what is today? July, uh, July 30th, tomorrow, Thursday, July 30th. So What great timing. And, um, right. and where can we find it? So it's being published in conjunction with the World Economic Forum. Uh, and I will personally post links to it. So – uh, you know, if you happen to visit the World Economic Forum website, <laughs> um, and what's and what's the the TLDR? What's the highlight of it of the paper? Uh, so the focus on that pa- of that paper was on reforming notice and consent. So actually, some of the ideas we discussed today uh, came out of some of that work. You know, data trusts, for example, or you know, different ways that we can move the focus away from kind of individual consent to data collection to more collective consent in some instances, but also ways that we can move away from the current model of stick a notice in front of you, get you to click it and take everything you have to, you know, more ongoing relationships, uh, relationships that we mediate through software, for example. Um, but really, my um, my impetus for it came from the fact that as we do talk about privacy legislation, this is the third rail that nobody talks about is reforming this process. And in my mind, we can pass a lot of privacy legislation, but if we don't fix this piece, then, you know, we're still stuck. So that's where the inspiration came from. It sounds great. I'm really fascinated by data trusts. Um, that's actually where Kali and I met years ago uh, through a group called Attention Trust um, that uh, we started around this. Um, so data trust makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you, Jen. Really appreciate your time. Thank and, you And um, look forward to reading your work. Thank Tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Take care. This is PSA Bye. Today, Privacy, Surveillance, Anonymity. It's Wednesday, July 29th. And on behalf of Kalia Young and uh, Dr. Jen King, um, thank you very much for your time. And stay safe, everybody. Bye-bye.